Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be talking about dreams in books. Do we like them or not? This is Simon's choice of topic, I will add. <laughs> um, he's going to be taking the lead on that. And in the second part, we are going to be comparing tea books by two different female authors. So we are going to be talking about William and Englishman by Cicely Hamilton, which is also the very first book for Stephanie Books ever published. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Great Fortune by Olivia Manning, which is the first in her Balkan trilogy of novels about um, Romania and World War, World War II. Here we go. So Simon, first of all, how are you and what are you reading? Hello. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. We're, we're also experimenting with new podcast mm. recording stuff, Zencaster, which hopefully, well, I mean, if it doesn't work, I guess you won't be listening to this, but, <laughs> but fingers crossed, uh, which I discovered whilst being a guest on a podcast, and I've actually been a guest on two podcasts since we lasted an episode. Wow. Um, is that are you just making that point to show how long it's been between episodes? <laughs> well, actually, it's not been that long since the last one. No. Um, in fact, I, and I think I maybe recorded at least one of them before that. It just they were they were doing things like editing or whatnot. But I was a guest on the Lost Ladies of Lit podcast that I've mentioned here before, talking about your favourite book and mine, Rachel, Oh the Brave Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it, so there you go. <laughs> wow. We talked a bit about you in that episode, in fact. Oh, um, well, you're being horrible you. about me. <laughs> I just said that even the nicest people can be wrong about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and as can you. But uh, And then the other... <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and that was really fun with um, Kim and Amy, who, present, who um, host that. Great fun. And then I was also on the Mooks and the Gripes podcast, uh, talking about... Uh, novels about books which as you know is something that I love very much yes I mean I feel like should I be offended that I never get asked you just need to be more active on Twitter I think that's where it all happens and Instagram and stuff I'm not online yeah that's where the connections are made but I'm sure I mean people get in touch get Rachel on your podcast I'd love to uh, be. I mean, I, I might not turn up because I'm not very organised. <laughs> she'll be there 15 minutes late. She won't know what the topic is and she'll be doing her ironing, but <laughs> she'll be she'll be great value when she's there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so check out Lost Ladies of Lit and um, The Mooks and the Gripes, wherever you get podcasts, and just have a little scroll. It's probably not the latest episodes anymore, but you'll find me somewhere there. And, uh, well, in general, those podcasts are great. So, But yes, to go back to what I'm reading, I've just, what I'm about maybe a fifth of the way into an audiobook of Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Ooh, Braddon. I love that book. And I'd never read it. We'd, I, I read about it in my first year at uni, and I think I went to a lecture about it, and people, you know, it was sort of one of the things people talked about, but I realised I didn't actually know anything about it other than, you know, how it represented a genre or how was it how, how popular it was, but nothing about the actual plot. And, yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's less histrionic than I imagined it would be. I thought it was going to be very sort of Castle of Otranto, over-the-top oh, no. gothic stuff. Um, and it's it's much more well, Austin-y, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite long, quite long in, so there's a lot of yes. hours on the audiobook. But um, I've got it at 1.85 speed, so <laughs> yeah, very quickly. <laughs> um, Rachel, since we've last spoken, in fact, in, only last week, I believe, earlier this week, you have been in foreign climes. I have. We've been in Costa Rica. It was lovely. Costa Rica. Um, 
a very beautiful country. My first time in Central America. Um, I've been merrily telling everyone I've been to South America before I got corrected when I was there. They're like, it's actually Central America. I was like, right, sorry about that. It's my geography. Does <laughs> that mean it's in which continent? It's in North America? Well, um, I mean, I don't really, to me, everything <laughs> south of North America is is South America. That's how I've always thought about it. But there is the, the central belt of Central America before you get into the actual continent of South America, which is like where Brazil starts and everything. Mm-hmm. So um, so you've got uh, Nicaragua, you've got Costa Rica. Panama, is that right there? You've got, yeah, Panama is the bridge between the two. I see. Yeah, so... Um, I want to say Belize. I'm just making up stuff now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was quite a journey. It's a very long journey from the UK. No direct flights from this country to Costa Rica. Um, so I spent a couple of hours in Texas each way, okay. um, which was interesting. Um, I got some I got some novelty M and M's from the candy store, <laughs> in, which was in fun. What, in what way novelty? <laughs> well, ones that we can't have here. You know, in America, like they law. have. Well, I don't know why we can't have them. I don't know why Nestle thinks that people in England won't want to eat chocolate fudge brownie M and M's. But oh I mean, gosh. I know, right? There's so many varieties in America, you would blow your mind. Last time I went properly for a holiday, I forced my friend to take me to the supermarket, and I was just like ages. She was like, "Can you just just buy a packet <laughs> of each of them? Like, let's just get out of here." Um, so yes, well, that was exciting. Yeah. Oxford's overrun with American candy uh, stores. So yeah. Maybe they've got them in there. No, well, they don't actually because London's oh. the same, but they just sell stuff that you can buy in Tesco. It's, you know, I don't really <laughs> For understand four times it. The price. Well, quite. Or Lucky Charms breakfast cereal, which I'm sure no one eats anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was very. Um, it's a very different landscape, obviously, to um, anywhere I've experienced, actually. The rainforest is amazing. The animals are incredible. There's sort of, you know, what's amazing. I was just sitting, I'm sitting on my balcony at the moment and I can see like, you know, like a little blue tit or something on the on the bird feeder downstairs. And if I were in Costa Rica sitting on my balcony, there would be monkeys instead. And it's just amazing to think <laughs> of like what's normal and ordinary for people. And it's like for tourists visiting, it's like the most incredible thing they've ever seen. Um yeah. And for Costa Ricans, it's just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, so it's, I saw crocodiles, I saw monkeys, I saw sloths, I saw turtles, I, oh, and oh, all oh. of them in that snakes, all in their natural environment. It was just wonderful. And um, the Costa Rican people are, are just lovely. And they're so passionate about their country and about preserving the nature there. And everything is so eco-friendly. I mean, you would have loved it. It's um, yeah. a really special place. It was very hot, though, for an English person. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> the humidity was something else. I was like, oh, I'm so hot. So, wow, with all that stuff going on, did you have any time for reading? Um, just a little bit. Um, so I, I read the second in the Olivia Manning series. And I um, actually, I read quite a bit on the way back on my Kindle. But you know what I did read is um, Longbourn, which by oh, Jay yeah. Baker, I want to say, um, which right. is the Pride and Prejudice from the perspective of the servants. And it's, I didn't know what, I thought I was worried it was going to be a bit sort of trashy. And actually, it was really beautifully written and just a really also well-researched insight into what it was like to be a servant at the time 
um, and she really cleverly echoes the plot of Pride and Prejudice within the lives of the of the serval, and it really emphasises how separate their lives are, but also how I, I guess the Brennets don't come across very well in, in how <laughs> sort of they take for granted their servant. You know, they don't really see them as people with lives of their own; they're just there to serve them and their needs. And yeah, I found it a really really good read. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I would recommend that. And apparently, I think I heard somewhere it's coming out as a film very shortly. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I think it's been in the works for a long time because it says in my edition, which was published, you know, when it came out, um, that, oh, it's been optioned for a film. I'm like, well, that was like eight years ago. So I don't know what they've been doing all that time. But, um, I guess it won't yeah. date, will it? So. Well, no, quite. So, yeah, watch this space. Right. Um, well, as you said in the introduction, the first half of this is a topic that I suggested which you, as always, were thrilled and keen to do. <laughs> but, so, do we like dreams in books? And the reason I thought about this when I was reading Dreaming of Rose by Sarah uh, Lefanu, uh, which uh, is nonfiction, but it's about writing her biography of Rose Macaulay. And it was originally, I think, self-published, but it was republished by Handheld Press maybe last year. Uh, and it's really interesting about the background in... It's sort of it's done in a diary form. It's all about writing a biography, researching how you get money, <laughs> paying the installments. Or a little, she was very briefly a host of the Good Read, so a little bit about that as well. Yeah. Uh, but also, as the title might suggest, includes right. She includes dreams that she has about Rose Macaulay, and it got me thinking: Do I like? Well, I knew I didn't. I don't like dreams and books, but <laughs> that's a blanket statement that I think we're going to unpack a bit, and will not be quite that. Um, quite that cut and dry but uh but i did think these these aren't adding to the narrative and what other books one ponders have dreams in and i know you weren't i know i'm always i started talking so i'm going to turn to you but uh, i do have some examples written down but i was intrigued when i said when i messaged you this afternoon dreams and books were there any that immediately leapt to mind or is that a complete blank Oh, well, no, actually, I did write some down earlier. Oh, brilliant. Wow. I did some very limited preparation for this. Um, so the first thing I thought of was obviously the first line of Rebecca. Mm, yeah, yeah. Last night I dreamed of it to Mandalay again. And um, a lot of people forget, I think, that it's a retrospective narrative. And mm. that we, you know, we start with this mystery of why is she dreaming of this place? Um, and obviously the novel itself isn't a dream, or is it? Um but the the idea of of somebody dreaming of a place and not being able to get back to it and that sort of haunting the telling of the story because you know that Rebecca is also very much a dreamlike presence because the version of her that um, the unnamed narrator has is is one who has been reconstructed from other people's memories so mm-hmm. um, it's, so that's an interesting one. Um, I also thought of um, Alice in Wonderland, obviously, which is which is all about someone falling asleep and having a dream for the whole whole book. Um, and um, there is, well, this is actually quite relevant at the moment. I don't know if people in the UK have been watching Life After Life on BBC, um, but Life After Life features the novel features um, the character Ursula, who regularly has nightmares and dreams where she sees things happening to her or dangerous things happening to her and they're sort of permanent she thinks that they're just bad dreams or or things that they're actually um her sort of past existences resurfacing which 
is very interesting and those dreams and those sorts of premonitions and inklings and things that she has enable her to make different choices in each of her lives that prevent her from repeating the same mistakes and dying in the same way again um which i really enjoyed and i'm just trying to think i had another book as well uh-huh. i can't remember what it was well, I, think, yeah, I think it's interesting that the two of the ones that you mentioned were two that i had rebecca and alice uh, alice's adventures in wonderland and they use dreams quite differently, don't they? Because uh, mm. Alice has that whole, uh, and then I woke up and it was all a dream conclusion where you don't know that you're reading a dream whilst it's happening, which has become yeah. a bit of a stereotype, although I can't think of that many famous examples of it. Um, whereas Rebecca obviously has the word dreamed as, you know, in the first sentence and, it's, yeah. you, you, and you know that that chapter is a dream. And I think there is quite a difference to how how the reader engages with it when it's a sort of plot twist or or something that you're already aware aware of uh and i think um both have their maybe pluses and minuses i think it's now now doing a the whole thing was a dream thing is is this going to annoy anyone because it's become such a tourism and i was thinking about all the times that happens in teenage horror books like point horror or goosebumps <laughs> or something where you think then the monster came into the room and the next chapter starts with then i woke up uh and yeah i think uh it's, there's probably clever ways to use dreams somehow but that's not one of them um <laughs> i think there's, there's stuff you can do about leaving uncertainty in the reader's mind about whether or not what they've read is a dream and that's still quite clever again i can't actually think of any examples but I, it's the sort of thing i see in tv and film a lot and i guess must happen in 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 books too but uh yeah things like rebecca and i think the beginning of weathering heights has that got a dream where she's at the window yes. and yeah um, well yeah. he doesn't he doesn't know so it's when um lockwood arrives and he's sleeping in there he gets put into that he has to find his own bedroom basically and he goes into the um into Kathy's old bedroom and gets into her bed and he thinks that he's having a nightmare but or he's mm. convinced that he's having a nightmare um, and Jane Eyre also features dreams. Well, that Charlotte is uh, not Charlotte. Mm, Jane is convinced that she's um, is told that she's dreaming about these screams and noises in the night when actually it's it's real. So I think something that's quite interesting is when dreams are used by characters to try and cover up real supernatural or mm-hmm. non supernatural happenings, which is quite common in nineteenth century fiction. Often used to silence women, gaslight women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like maybe it's the beginning of Metamorphosis by Kafka got some of that as well. You're not quite sure if that's a dream. Never read it. Mm, I have read it, but I can't remember if how much time he thinks it might be a dream. But you, it'd be a reasonable thing to assume if you wake up and you're a bug. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I like that what you're saying about it being used. Because I think. Um, that period of Victorian novel had these fighting impetuses of like longing for authenticity, which is why it's always pretending they're real documents they've been found or, you know, some sort of framing narrative saying, I found this and someone told me this and I wrote it all down. But also the more supernatural and the more sort of fantastical and bizarre and spiritual elements coming in. and And yeah, the dream or the maybe dream is a good way of combining the two. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know it's a useful device isn't it um and it's also i think i can't think of like specific examples but i know i've read books as well where dreams are used as a device to reveal the kind of psychological state of the character 
or allows them to articulate feelings that they can't when they're awake. Um, yeah, I've definitely read some trashy romancy type books yeah. where they realise they're in love because they've just had a romantic dream about that person. You know, oh my goodness, why did I dream about them? Is it because I love them? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like Elizabeth Gouge does things like that. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think that they can be interesting devices. They don't have to just be clumsy in terms of, oh, well, I've just solved this gaping plot hole by pretending that it never really happened after all, because that is lazy. Um, but I do, I think if you're going to use dreams, you have to be using them for a particular purpose. Like, for example, in Life After Life, those dreams are used to show the different paths that Ursula's life could have gone down or they're used to justify how she knows not to do things um and they're also you know dreams are things that you know you can either take seriously or not take seriously and the fact that you know there are people who really believe in dreams aren't there who believe that you can um you know you, you can analyze dreams and and they are a kind of valid form of of science in or scientific or psychological way of, of looking at people and, and there are other people who think that they're all just rubbish so you've got if you've got people in a book who really believe that their dreams mean something and you've got people who don't then that also gives a justification for why somebody could believe something and someone else doesn't believe them etc so you've got lots that you can play with there but if you're just using it as a way to do something ridiculous and then or to, to say oh well this terrible this, this character just died but actually they didn't because it was just a dream <laughs> and this all happily ever after then um i think maybe you should have written a different book uh-huh. yeah i think rose mccauley does some stuff about you know freudian stuff in dreams in dangerous ages where someone says very uh, there's a character who starts going to psychoanalysis and she loves sh- sharing her dreams and things but she just basically likes having the attention of mm. a man as, as, as an older as an older woman she's not really getting attention from anyone so she just likes that someone's listening to her for a bit and i think is it in the provincial lady or maybe a different em delafield books where she says that she refuses to be drawn on the subject of dreams because because it's so much uh amateur dream interpretation going on in that period yeah uh, i mean i i love a bit of dream interpretation myself um, yeah when I was younger my sister and I used to have well as my sister's really she had this big dream dictionary um and we used to love it we used to sit after we would had dreams I mean I never remember my dreams now but when I was younger I used to have quite vivid dreams and I used to go in in the morning and be like oh I dreamt about this and we'd get the dictionary out and we'd go through and then she'd try and it sort of interpret it and we loved it yeah. yeah, we've done a bit of church actually in a course I was on about dream interpretation and how God speaks through dreams, but I simply yeah. don't really remember my dreams. No, um, I never do, apart from if I've had a horrible nightmare. Yeah. Always about odd things. It's very strange, your mind, I find, when you're asleep. Well, yes. In fact, talking yeah. about nightmares, uh, Tom's Minute Garden was another one that came to mind. Uh, oh, yes. I chiefly remember it from the TV version, which I, I found, my brother and I both found terrifying. There's a bit where he's, they, they translate the dream. Uh, and it's basically the, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the the angels on the stairs yelling at him. That won't mean anything to people who've not read it. But the book is about a, a boy who gets up when the clock strikes 13 and discovers that there is a, a garden in behind the, the apartment building he's staying in with his aunt and uncle that uh, hasn't been there for many many years uh, so it's yeah a bit like Wuthering Heights it's, it's a novel where there are well, much more overtly fantastical things so 
what he sees in a dream isn't any less likely than the things that he is experiencing. But uh, that's quite clever in that the reader doesn't doesn't know what's real or what's not at that point. But the fact that it was a dream doesn't remove the fantastical elements from the book. It's not like, oh, everything actually was normal. It's just this bit was normal and this the remaining stuff is still fantastical. Yeah, I mean, that's I reread that book actually a couple of years ago because I was thinking about teaching it and I wanted to mm. see if it was too dated. I decided it was in the end um, no for shame. today's kids. Um, I was like, yeah, they just won't. They've moved beyond that level of fiction, I think, at that age. So, I mean, I, I think it'd be fine for primary school, but not for secondary. But um, I just mm. thought, again, it's so well written and just so magical. I just remember being absolutely enchanted. And I also, a very similar book, Moondial by Helen Cresswell, mm. also about a dream landscape once the night um, comes, another children's book that if people listening have got kids and you've not come across that, it's a wonderful book. And there's another one from the 80s. There's a real sort of lovely um, resurgence of really interesting intellectual children's writing in the 80s. That is, uh, 80s and early 90s, but I think a lot of it is out of print and sort of diminished a bit now. But I, I think it's... Um, I think it's yeah, very good. Yeah, I saw an adaptation of that with a with a friend who uh, then bought me the book as a present, but accidentally bought me like a version for early readers. <laughs> so <laughs> it was. I mean, it's already a children's book, and the version I got was one of those ones that has maybe twenty words on a page, and they're all one syllable long. <laughs> so I've never read the actual um, <laughs> proper book, so I should do that. Um, yeah, I think the type of dream in a book and indeed in real life that I don't enjoy is what Sarah Lefanud was doing which was telling the events of a dream with a sort of wonder that it doesn't make sense you know when someone says and then you won't believe it but my bedroom turned out to be a castle or something it's like well yes I know that a dream doesn't make sense I know that it's going to be unusual so I think if it's just a series of strange events or things that wouldn't happen and there's no interest in them beyond the fact that they're unusual uh then I do find them a bit tedious because whether in reality or in, in a novel, they're, they're just a string of strange things. So yeah, if they're, if they're playing off more of what the old person's thinking or they are playing with, you know, reflecting the reality of the rest of the novel or doing any of these things we've talked about, then I think they, there is some use to them. But if it's just, this is odd, then I find, yeah, I just don't find it very interesting. Yeah, me too. Wow. I mean, I'm sensing you just don't like dreams in novels, Simon. Well, I think certainly I have a bit of reputation for not wanting people to tell me their dreams, which I I think I've been a bit too brusque on that topic in the past. Uh, and maybe, I, yeah, I, it's not a blanket ban, but if I'm if I'm coming down on one side, I'm sticking with my initial uh, reaction of dreams in novels. No, thank you. How about you? Um, I don't mind them, um, but as long as they're there for a purpose and they're not there to to kind of change the plot at the end which I just think if you're going to kill someone off just kill them off don't then bring them back to life again by pretending it's all a dream so um I wouldn't say I, I'm not saying that I I love them but I don't I'm not against them so I'd I'd, I'd disagree with you and say yes there we go <laughs> yeah great um we have I don't think we've used this yet it was a question actually I think we got in for the 100th episode and didn't use them, but a question oh. we can use now from Karen, which is, what are, you, what are some of our favourite plays? Ah, oh, wow. And you're obviously asking... this is your area of expertise. It is, you're asking a playwright. So, um, well, 
Um, I'll do some classic ones and then I'll do some contemporary ones. So uh, my absolute favourite play of all time, I think is perfect work of literature that I just adore is A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller. Um, I think it's his best play. Some people would disown name, many people would disagree with me and, and say all my sons, all the crucible, but I prefer A View from the Bridge. And um, I've taught it many times and my students have always loved it. And I think if you can get a class of 16-year-olds to love a play, then it's got to be a good play, you know. I mean, obviously, yeah. I, I'm an amazing teacher, but, goes that's you it, know, yeah. obviously. Um, so, yes, that's one that I absolutely love. Um, I also love A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Mm. It's another American classic. Um, I think that there are some very good um, sort of plays coming into the latter part of the 20th century. So um, really enjoy Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, which I think is mm. his best play. I don't think he's really written anything very good since. <laughs> um, and I contemporary stuff there's loads of stuff that I absolutely my favorite playwright is an American woman called Annie Baker um who writes amazing plays that are very realistic about with a bit of weird sort of surrealism in them um about ordinary people just doing ordinary stuff um her play okay. The Flick is amazing um it's set in a cinema in somewhere in Massachusetts and it's just three employees and their strange lives and it's really great um, I love that, but all of her plays are great. Um, John is another play by her that's set in a um, B and B in Gettysburg, um, which is is very random, but again, really interesting. Um, I really enjoy Laura Wade. Um, she did a version of the Watsons most recently, um, which mm. is a really really good play. She also wrote Home I'm Darling, which I know you enjoyed. Oh, you yes, saw I that. Did. Yeah, so and she's most famous for her play Posh, which is about um, Billingdon boys, Oxford, basically very always yeah. <laughs> always relevant. So I think you'd enjoy that very much. Um, trying to think what else I really love. Um, so many, so many examples. I I'd have to go and I I could give you a big list. But yeah, there's if you're not used to reading plays, I think um, sometimes people can find it a bit like weird or they're like oh why would mm, I read a play mm. but actually reading plays is really fun because they're quick reads but also you have to bring a lot of yourself to them in a way that you don't to a novel like you have to to really use your imagination you've got to fill in the gaps you've got to try and imagine the staging particularly if you've never seen it you have to really sort of engage yourself with it and I think it's a really um exciting and interesting and creative process to to involve yourself in a play um you know and there's there's some great like Nick Hearn books for example if you're new to plays and you want to get into into reading plays Nick Hearn books is the the major play publisher in the UK and they do a subscription where you can sign up and you can get a, a random play sent to you every every month and um, so if that's something that's that's interesting to you then have a look at that because that will kind of ease you into to getting to read some more contemporary writing but there's there's so many great playwrights out there and something I do is I every time I go to the theatre at least twice a week and I always buy the play script um so that also means that I'm I'm reading I like to go back and have a look something else someone else you might uh, be interested in looking at is um the best play I saw live last year well this year I can't remember what, what month are we in no I think I saw it this year <laughs> um is White Noise by um Susan Laurie Parks who's another American playwright and that was on at the Bridge Theatre in London and it's an incredible play about race and um really really provocative and the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in the theatre 
Um, oh, that's wow. a yeah, it's a really great. So if you get a hold of that and have a look at it, um, yeah, I'd really recommend that. Cool. What about um, you, Simon? I'll, yeah, I'll throw some in as well. Uh, I think some of the ones that I love most are classics for a reason. Like it's very hard to not love a, a performance of *Be Important to Being Honest* by yes. Oscar Wilde. It's just so brilliant. I love Noel Coward particularly. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I wish they'd put more cowards on in, in London because it seems like it just goes back and forth between still life and private lives and hay fever in like a cycle. It's like, oh, oh well, no, it's, so it's, always, it's always Blythe Spirit, actually. Oh, of course. Which, and which Blythe I Spirit, love. Yes, which is I great. Love... But, but he wrote so yeah. many. Let's have some yeah. others. And that was a good thing about being, I never was acted in student drama, but, but there's so much student drama and they quite often could afford to put on things that you know, didn't need to attract more than 50 people because that's all the room there was in the in the audience um so yeah uh we went to go and see the dover road by aml together which we i love did. in the uh, tiny german street theater lovely yeah lovely german street and I, mean, I think my favorite play by him is mr pym passes by but uh but the dover road is up there and he does some wonderful quite cowardian sort of plays um particularly around that period of his career who was originally famous as a playwright before well and a punch sketch writer so yeah he was he was a very big playwright at one point um obviously shakespeare love watching much do about nothing anytime it's put on mm-hmm. um uh, i was trying to think of contemporary ones i think i don't i haven't seen that many contemporary plays that i love but i really liked lungs by duncan Macmillan. oh yes which, that's a wonderful yeah, play which i saw um i watched it online actually with the, the claire foy and matt smith version but i preferred the version i saw in a pop-up theater on the south bank in maybe 2015 or something um which was i saw it live with claire for and Mm. it was great yeah i think it i think think maybe you had to see it live online yeah because it was they did split screen the whole time which didn't really work in my opinion because i think one was great so it's a play Yeah. yeah Yeah, it's a play with no props or anything. It's just a bare stage and two characters talking from the time they meet until the end of their relationship, basically. And, and it is, I think, one of the great things about seeing it live is you're constantly aware of how close or how far apart they are from each other, which on a split screen, doesn't you don't get. Yeah, yeah well, that's a bit of an odd choice that they made there. I wonder why they did that. He's, um, yeah, he's written another great play as well called People, Places and Things, which people might want to look at, which is... Um, a really good play okay. about someone at a um what's the word i can't think what it's called when you've got an addiction and you go somewhere to help i can't think oh, of the word um, re- re- um, rehab there we go rehab, rehab there we go when you go to rehab yeah yeah so that's um, worth thinking yeah well, there you go, Karen. Lots of plays, which you know may or may not be on. But as as Rachel says, reading plays it doesn't happen that much. But I think it is really rewarding. And I love—I've not done it for years, but I love just getting a group of friends and doing a play reading together. Not not really acting it. Just well, like that's it adorable. To imagine you all doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I did that. Did that with the Shakespeare play in in, in the meadows of Oxford years ago. Uh. Um, if I... <laughs> uh if you yeah if you have friends who'd be open to that <laughs> then i recommend right okay so two novels about couples on the brink of a world war uh, the great fortune by living manning and william an englishman by cicely hamilton uh shall i introduce william an englishman you do the other is that right yes yes 
Yeah. Great. So, as as Rachel said, it was the first Persephone republished. It was originally published in 1919, so just after the end of the First World War, but it's about the beginning. There's a couple called William and Griselda, bizarre choice of name, Griselda, <laughs> who, <laughs> who uh, have met because they are both fervently pro-causes, Griselda's causes, suffragism, uh, or militant suffragism, uh, and... Williams is socialism uh, and they they meet through these very the passionate um, meetings and campaigning and they fall in love and they get married and they are offered a friend's cottage to stay in in Belgium so they go to Belgium away from newspapers away from letters from friends they've got no communication with the outside world they've been there a few weeks when they see soldiers on the horizon and discover when they are assaulted and then I guess kidnapped, I'm not really sure what the word is, in a war situation by a group of German soldiers who have invaded and taken over Belgium uh, and tell them that they are going to go and take over England, well, France on the way. Uh, and then it's basically what happens during the rest of their experience in Belgium and and afterwards, won't give too many big main plot spoilers, but yes. So, uh, The Great Fortune by Olivia Manning is the first in a series of three. Uh, that are all called collectively called the Balkan Trilogy. Um, you can get it as a trilogy or you can buy them as separate novels. Um, I think if you bought them as a trilogy, you would have very tiny print. So I would recommend buying them <laughs> as um, separate separate ones. Uh, they've just been reprinted, actually, by Penguin in very nice editions, if anyone's interested, um, after listening mm. to us. Hopefully waxing lyrical about them. I don't know what Simon thinks about it yet. Um, <laughs> so The Great Fortune is the first, and it's or semi-autobiographical I think uh, well I think pretty much autobiographical people's names have been changed essentially oh, is it? I didn't know that. Mm, yeah very much so so it tells the story of a couple Harriet and Guy who have just got married and Guy um, is a lecturer in English at the university in Romania in Bucharest and he's been sent there by the British Council and he comes home on leave and he meets Harriet while he's, he's home and they get married within the space, meet and get married within the space of about a month. So they don't really know each other very well. And then he brings her back to Bucharest. It's 1939. War is about to break out. Um, and it's basically just the story of what it's like to live in Bucharest in a country where there's a lot of unrest, um, but also a lot of feeling of being quite removed from things um at the same time so it's during the period really of the phony war and before war has really broken out properly and there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether um war will actually come to Romania and whose side Romania will be on and um lots of gossip and intrigue within the English community but there's also the German community in Romania and there's also problems with the Romanian monarchy so it's a story as much about a marriage as uh, as well as about um, living in a time of uncertainty in a country that is also um, not your own, essentially. So, yeah, that's that. Great. And so is this your first time reading these books? It was my first Olivia Manning. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I'd, I'd heard lots of people say good things about it, but you know, you never know, do you? Um, and so I launched in, not really sure what to. I mean, I've been to Romania myself, so I did. Oh, I, yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah, I went to Brasov, 
um, which is another city in Romania, um, one of the, the biggest cities. So I had a kind of, I could imagine the setting, I could imagine the architecture um, a little bit. Um, and I found the writing immediately very compelling. It's one of those books where nothing really happens, but it's like you don't care because the characters are so interesting and it's funny. And I particularly love the character of Yakimov, who is this Russian or half Russian, half Irish um, prince, um, although of what nobody knows. And he's um, he's completely penniless. He's washed up in, in Bucharest because he's got nowhere else to go, essentially. And he is basically a scrounger, goes around borrowing money off everybody, never paying anybody back. Um, and it, he's sort of that kind of lifestyle where you can just be a hanger-on in various European capitals on living on nothing. Um, begging and borrowing from people is, is fascinating. I'm not sure. I don't know if you could live like that these days. Maybe you could. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the the petty kind of um, disagreements and the uh, political intrigue and manoeuvres between the different groups of people, the people who work for the British legation and the people who work for the British Council and then the people who work for the, the British um, government, you know, they're all there for different purposes, different reasons. And some people have got the right to stay permanently and some people haven't. And it's um, lots of gossip and, you know, journalists always looking for news. It's, it's, it's I find books about expat life really interesting, particularly, you know, old fashioned expat life where people really did live in a bubble with people from their own community. Um, and I found it really interesting as well that Harriet makes no attempt whatsoever to, to learn Romanian or to make friends mm, with Romanian mm, people. Yeah. It's, it's very much just accepted that she will stay at home and she'll speak to the one other English woman that she can find in Romania and that's it. Um, which, you know, I think actually from my experiences of talking to people who've lived expat lives, particularly in Middle Eastern countries where they live on compounds and things, it's very much the same. You are living a very separate life. And I found that that quite interesting because Guy very much does involve himself with life there and he does speak Romanian and he does make Romanian friends and Harriet doesn't and that discord between them um is is quite interesting yeah I think it is interesting how it's this novel where nothing as you say nothing really happens even though we're in wartime such a contrast to William and Englishman where the beginning of war comes so suddenly and violently whereas here Basically, there's a bit of food scarcity. Um, yeah. And, and other than that, they're still having dinner parties. They're still socialising. They're still having events. And their, their main, it, all their main anxieties are still social rather than um, bellicose. Is that the right word for being warlike? Yes. Um, yeah, I found also, as you say, Yakimov, this, a, a fascinating character. He... He, as, he, as you say, he's living on nothing. Whenever any, anyone does give him money, even if it's money for rent that he needs, he immediately goes and spends it on the most yeah. exorbitant meal he can find. Uh, he's, he's always after fine wines and oysters and things. Um, although at one point it does talk about it being an addiction, like any, like you know, like any other addiction to to fine food. So um, he's a comic character, but there is something else going on there. And I did think it was. I did find it interesting contrast in character types between him and Guy and Harriet because you can see Yakimov being in a 
you know, a, maybe a, a Dickens novel or a novel where there's lots of heightened, yes. grotesque, grotesque characters. And Harriet and Guy are much more realistic. And they do meet. There's quite often they're kept separate in the novel, and there's parallel stories between them. Yeah. And when and when they meet, I was thinking, can can a passage bear the bear the weight of these two different types of people? I think it it did work, although it made Yakimov less amusing to me when you suddenly saw the real life consequences of his incredible selfishness and yes. yeah, his disregard for everyone else's feelings. And when you see how that actually affects people like Harriet, then it's no longer quite so funny, I guess. No. Yeah, he's he's completely oblivious to the needs of others. And that kind of unthinking selfishness, I think, is is something that's quite challenging, but there's also an endearing quality. I mean, mm-hmm. you feel a bit sorry for someone who's been brought up, basically, to, to never have a profession or any kind of skills. So he can't look after himself. Um, he's got no way of... of supporting himself because he's got no skills he's got no real education he can't do anything he was brought up for a world that's disappeared so it's um that sense of that lots of people who are living in Bucharest I don't know you know what it is about Bucharest but there seems to be lots of people who just shipped up there from because they don't belong anywhere else Mm. um and it's this kind of last bastion of, of old Europe I think for a lot of the characters that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think both these novels are interesting in the way that they show new mar- or recent marriages in the face mm. of something extraordinary. Um, there's very little of of William and Griselda's marriage before this war starts, so we don't see that much of their relationship. But, uh, but yeah, the way I really liked how we saw the, I imagine, fairly ordinary conflicts and discoveries and things between Guy and Harriet seeing how they do or don't share the same views on relatively minor things but against this backdrop of of war that maybe heightens things or it, it certainly didn't make those um incompatibilities and, and compa- compatibilities feel less significant I guess you still it still felt like a novel as you say about about marriage and about a young couple who are still very interested in themselves and their relationship, even in the face of the world changing. Yeah, and I think that's something as well that's quite interesting to think about in our own times, because even amidst the background of, of terrible stuff going on, ultimately their, their main interest is still themselves and their everyday lives. And it's interesting to think about that. You think, oh gosh, if, if war happened, you know, everything would stop and actually everything doesn't stop you know you're still annoyed that your husband didn't ask you if he could invite friends around tonight or you know (laughs) things like that you know life continues doesn't it um and it's um it's interesting it's interesting also that from both Harriet and Guy's perspective they don't they don't really feel they have a home to go back to so they feel quite there's no like lots of other people like oh well you know I'm going to be hightailing myself back to England as soon as I can you know before things you know go really mm. far downhill here and and there's no desire between the two of them to go home they they quite like being there and they quite like being expats and being separate from other people I think that's quite interesting too um from that perspective and Harriet's very determined not to be shipped off like just you know some silly woman who who needs to be mm. protected you know she doesn't want to do that she wants to resist but at the same time she doesn't really have a role or a purpose um and I can imagine and thinking about it as being autobiographical as well it's quite interesting to think about you know Olivia Manning was obviously a very intelligent woman um and you know how frustrating it must have been to be in that position where she wasn't allowed to work she didn't have anything to do 
and she couldn't speak the language. So, you know, what do you do? It's interesting that you say it's about the autobiographical thing because it, it's not in the first person, it is third, third person. And mm-hmm. I thought that she was quite dispassionate about the characters, in, in fact, which I guess maybe is a way of not making it seem too overtly autobiographical if she's um, distancing well, herself she, um, from them. I think she annoyed some people. Um, oh. <laughs> they very much saw themselves in the novel. I see. Yeah. Um, I was interested about the, I was trying to pinpoint what I thought of the writing style and the tone, and I couldn't really think. I mean, it was written when, 1960s, early 1960s? I think um, so, yeah. So a bit of a distance from the war and a period when um, I guess the style of the novel was changing a bit. But what, what did you think of the sort of tone of it? I thought it was, um, I didn't think it was very, it's not a flowery novel, it's quite straightforward, mm. the prose, and I thought, found it very easy to read. I don't think also it's overly descriptive. I just I just found it very kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I whipped through it. Um, mm. I, think, I think her strength as a writer is in her dialogue and her characterisation, because she really brings people's voices to life um, and personalities. Um, I didn't think that I was, yeah, it, I think it is quite the 60s in its style, actually, in that way. Yeah. It just gets to the point. And it sort of reminded me of George, I guess, George Orwell in a way, not particularly similar writing, but in the way that it's really good writing, but you can't really work out why. Like if you look at a sentence, yeah. there's, there's nothing showy or nothing you'd say, well, that, this is what makes it fine writing. But but collectively, you just get a sense of it being really good. <laughs> but um, Yeah. Not, yeah. But it's interesting when you read on, if people are interested in knowing more. So you can be, I've read on to the next one um, and I'm on the third now. Um, it felt very different in style, the second one, uh, particularly at the beginning, because she does that infuriating thing where she spends the next, the first sort of five or six chapters retelling me things that I've read in the first book. Oh, and no. Yeah, and you know when you think, well, the thing is, Olivia, nobody is going to be reading this book if they haven't read the first one. So I don't know why you're doing this. <laughs> Although when annoying. I do read it in like three years' time, I'll be very grateful. You'll be for grateful the for the reminder, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, you know, stuff that I think it especially annoyed me because I literally finished reading the book mm. one day, uh, went to the charity shop on the off chance. They happened to have the second volume. Oh, I was like, brilliant. Great. I know, yeah. it's a book serendipity. And I started reading it immediately. And I was like, yes, I know. I've literally just read this. Um, you know, perhaps if I'd given <laughs> if I, if I'd had a month or so between the two, then I I would have appreciated the reminder. But I did find it all a bit sort of you know, right? It was it was very like writing for dummies, and I was like, I don't, I'm not enjoying this. But after those first few chapters, I got back into it again. Oh, good. Yeah, I thought the tone of William and Englishman was really interesting because it starts off in quite almost satirical. So mm. she writes about the characters in quite a a funny way talking about how um let's see if i can just find a quote that i noted down that i liked about the way she described their passion she says that this is of william he was an extremist passionately well-intentioned and with all the extremist contempt for those who balance see difficulties and strive to give the other side its due so there's there's a lot of her i mean she don't think she necessarily disagrees with their causes but she does suggest that the way they go about them is over the top and um that they're not very mature thinkers and that sort of thing and it is quite funny she pokes fun at them a bit it's not it's not an out and out satire but there is a or maybe a dryness to the writing 
and the mm. shift and it shifts to being something completely different when they are suddenly in the midst of this violence and this um, war. Uh, there's a bit at first where they're trying to um, understand this new world through the lens of what they've previously experienced. So they're originally they're sort of pushed to the ground by soldiers and they're outraged and they want to go to the embassy and all this sort of thing. And it quickly becomes much, much worse than that. Uh, and the tone becomes quite brutal, I think. Some, this, I read the book I don't know, a few years, quite a few years ago, and there are some sections that have definitely stayed with me, maybe more in the sort of visceral brutality of them rather than the, the exact details of what happened. But I definitely remembered the sense of being thrown into this rapidly changing and very different world. But I think she carries that tonal change really successfully. But if you were reading the novel not knowing what was coming, it really is jarring in a really successful way, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. And it really, you know, you start reading the book and it feels very much like a, you know, a stereotypical novel of the time about a young couple getting married and, mm. you know, that sort of settling, making homes together and she's making fun of them. And, you know, you feel, you feel, oh, yeah, I know what I'm reading. I feel comfortable with this genre. I'm, I'm going to be laughing my way through this book. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, OK, right. I'm actually reading something completely different. And it's throws you as the reader out of your comfort zone just as the characters are and you know you're she doesn't spare the details um and I remember you know the really shocking incident that I won't mention um mm. which you know I was really I was like oh okay oh I didn't really know what to do with myself I was just like oh I'm I was really upset and sort of you know taken aback by it um because it is very you know it's not necessarily graphic, but it's, you know, it's, it's just kind of like you don't expect that to happen mm -hmm. to somebody like that um, in those circumstances. And it really makes you see the brutality of war and, um, you know, she doesn't hold back her punches. You know, this is a book about how awful war is, how futile war is, how war destroys people's lives um, and people who, you know have no interest or involvement in war you know these two are complete naive idiots really they mm -hmm. don't see a world beyond their own um belief systems and they're the type of people who only talk to people who believe in the same things they do they only read things that support the beliefs that they have so they've got no awareness of how other people live their lives they have no awareness of what else is going on in the world you know that they are totally surprised by the outbreak of war because they didn't really believe it was going to happen well, it's very different to Harry and Guy, you know, they're, they're switched on, they understand the scenario that they're in. Um, and that kind of, you know, innocence, I suppose, and naivety yeah, yeah. is, you know, in some ways it's, it's something that we should be critical of. Obviously, you know, you do need to have your eyes open and you need to be looking at stuff beyond your own perspective of the world. But at the same time, it's it's like people like that shouldn't, be swept up in in wars you know what what business have they got to be killed by soldiers or hurt by soldiers or whatever you know like they're not what have they done to anybody and it's that sort of utility of it all and unfairness and unjustness you know they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time you know they're they're born in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah yeah and it's interesting that uh, as you say guy and harriet are much more aware of world politics but mm. i think Suddenly, in this first volume, I don't know if it changes that Manning doesn't have that 
much to say about war in this book. It's not really about no. uh, the morality of war or or anything that that Hamilton's doing. The war is basically just a thing that is happening in the book, and that's yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's no comment made on the the rights or wrongs of it, yeah. which is interesting. Actually, it is interesting that she doesn't use it, it as an opportunity. But I guess maybe because she was writing it at such a distance, what was the point? Whereas, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. The other is, I think it's 1919, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The only other book I've read by Manning is School of School for Love, School of Love. Face, which is uh, set yeah. in Jerusalem, uh, and I really liked that, but um, I don't remember many details. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not really, anyth- I don't even know of anything else by Cicely Hamilton. I seem she wrote other novels, but I never hear people talk about them. She actually was a playwright, funnily enough. I um, ah. I, I came across her, I found in the library at university a book of, of um, women playwrights from before the 1940s. There was a play in there by Daphne du Maurier, who knew she wrote plays, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't very good. And um, a play by Cicely Hamilton, I believe, about the life of Shakespeare. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah, So there is some stuff out there by her, but I don't know how many novels she wrote. I certainly haven't ever found anything in print by her. No. Hmm. Well, I've got, I don't know if I still know. I used to have a biography of her, which I'm sure would detail it, but never read it. Uh, I think it's interesting that this is the first Persephone book, and Persephone have like a reputation for cosy books, and this is the opposite of cosy so it is interesting that i mean that those of us who know persephone well know that they don't just do cosy books and there's a whole range and from right from the off they were saying they don't sit too comfortably there's a beautiful books and some of them are just you know fun lovely times but there's a lot of stuff going on here mm. yeah. yeah uh we should probably come to our teal books decision making time um rachel which are you choosing well, I think they're both great novels for different reasons. Um, but I think, oh, this is going to be a hard one, actually. Mm. I think for for the fact that it's got something to say and it says it so well, I would go with uh, William and Englishman. Right. What about um, you? Yeah, it is tricky because they are quite different and doing, mm. doing different things. Um, I think i will also go with william and englishman because it is so powerful and memorable uh and i really yeah i did really like both but um there's something oh good about, so you did like yeah. it then i did so i don't know if i said that yeah i really liked both yeah. um I, <laughs> I really liked <laughs> Libby manning uh i did and i i probably won't race straight on to the next ones but i will read them at some point and i will be grateful for that recap section <laughs> uh, yeah Great. cool okay um yeah, interesting to compare those. Uh, and the novels we'll be comparing in the next episode are The Feast by Margaret Kennedy that we mentioned last episode with Grand Canyon by Vita Sackville-West, a lesser read one of her books. But you, you'll see why we're suggesting those two together when you listen in episode 105 next time. Uh, do get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions or your questions, etc. And we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks very much for listening.